I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the University of California at Santa Barbara's, let's see, Black History Month celebration of Barbershop. And I really want to thank you for coming out. It's going to be a fun event tonight. And I really appreciate looking out and seeing so many faces. I have to say I was a bit worried that I wasn't going to make it because my flight was canceled last night. I was to have gotten in last night. I just got off the plane, so I'm a bit jet-lagged and tired. So if I'm a little bit out of it, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so let me just tell you what you are in store for today. Um, when I was thinking about trying to, well, first of all, I should introduce myself, right? I am Professor Anna Everett, and I teach in the Film Studies Department. I'm also the new director of the Center for Black Studies, and this is sort of my public coming out event for the community. So I wanted to do something for Black History Month that I thought would be fun, as well as intellectually stimulating and challenging. So I hope you will participate, because it's about you as well as us. So here's the program. Um, we are going to have a three-part event tonight. We're going to screen the film Barbershop, and one of the reasons that I wanted to present this particular film, you, you guys may be aware of the fact that it was quite controversial after the Reverend Jesse Jackson and others uh, were protesting its treatment of the civil rights issues, and I think that will come across in the film. And as a re result of that controversy, I thought, well, this would be something that I think the UCSB community might enjoy, maybe want to even weigh in on and talk about some of the issues. So we're going to screen the film, and then the second thing that we're going to do is have a panel discussion about the film, and uh, we will do that immediately following the screening, and then we'll take a short break for you to hit the restrooms, which are in the uh, through the double doors, into the multicultural center, just adjacent, and under the stairs, and to the left. After uh, we have the panel discussion, we're going to have dinner, and we would like to have you let the panelists eat first, and then all of the people with their meal tickets to eat, we have the food will be set up, and then after we've eaten, then we'd like to begin the open mic discussion, which includes you, and we'd like you to come and discuss and make some comments about the film, some observations. So that's the order of the program, and then we're going to conclude uh, with some remarks about some of the issues that we want to talk about. So before we show the film, I do want to put it in context, because I want you to see the film through some of the lenses that I want to uh, kind of overlay this text with. So, um, one of the things I want to begin with is the fact that, uh, first of all, this program is dedicated to the memory of Shirley Kennedy, who was a professor here recently passed. We're dedicating it in her memory tonight. Also, um, I just want to get right to why we're doing this. Um, 
One of the things that I wanted to do in putting this program together was to try to provide something that would be fun, but also so that we can talk about film and the nature and role of commercial entertainment in public discourse. Because one of the things that I'm convinced about is that this film was really successful as a result of the controversy. It probably would have uh, come and gone. Um, but as you will see in the text itself, it raises some really important issues that we want to discuss. First of all, as a result of the film's bashing of the civil rights movement and its leaders, and this occurs in the last half of the film, I really thought that this would give us something to think about as well as some of the other issues, such as, what is or what constitutes a black film? Recently, the LA Times did um, a story on the fact that black films are crossing over, attracting a large multiracial audience. And one of the things that we want to kind of think about as we talk about what constitutes a black film are these issues. Is a black film black because there's a black director, a black producer, screenwriter, positive or accurate representations of black life and culture? Is it black themes or subject matter? Is it none or all of the above that you would say constitutes a black film? Also, there's another question. Is there such a thing as what I'm calling colorblind artistic practices? Or is this just a convenient way to avoid charges of selling out the race or not respecting the powerful role that popular entertainment plays in the struggle for social justice and racial justice? So for me, what we need to think about is what I'm calling the burden of representation for black filmmakers that doesn't really seem to be in effect for mainstream or white filmmakers. So when a white filmmaker then makes a film like Ishtar that bombs at the box office, they get money to make more films. And when black filmmakers make films, they may or may not get more money to make a film, whether it's successful or not. So there are several films that, let's say a white filmmaker would make, like Dumb and Dumber, Little Nicky, Animal House, or Slackers, or you fill in the name. And these would be films that don't have the most positive representations of white culture, right? But the white race is not wounded by these kinds of texts. So arguably, in the same way that exploitation films wound minority communities, we don't have that similar or parallel practice with white films. And I'm saying that because the reason these kinds of films that I named don't wound white culture in the same way that arguably negative films wound black culture is that there are so many types of films that white filmmakers can make, have the option of making. But that's not the case with black films. So you don't have the variety and the, and the diversity of subject matter, of themes, to offset or counterbalance some of the negative or stereotypical or damaging representations of black culture. And then, what about this question? If black filmmakers make a positive black film, but nobody comes to see it, not even the black community, if they don't support it, what does that say? I mean, these are some of the questions that we have. Also, there's this charge that you know a black film is positive because it's going to have some propaganda in it, or there's overt racial politics. And so mainstream society tends to issue or maybe not be as interested in those types of positive films. 
And then there's another issue. What about white filmmakers who make black-themed films, like Spielberg's Amistad, for example? It bombed. There's this feeling that films like that are, are, are medicine, right? That they're going to be good for you. So those historical texts seem to kind of send people running away from the box office. So these are some of the things that we want to ask. What's happening here? But because there are so few black Hollywood films, the few that do get made tend to have what we in film studies call a documentary effect. I mean, we know these are fictions, but because we see so few black films, we tend to think of them as representing or having a kernel of truth or reality. So again, this sort of documentary effect, because there aren't that many. So this raises a question for me about greenlighting a black film. So what kinds of films are allowed to be made? We have to think about that when we also think about it in the context of this larger question of what constitutes a black film. And then how do black filmmakers who want to create art, make a living, uplift the race, and function in the commercial and ideological marketplace called Hollywood achieve these goals? Is it possible? Is the independent film sector the only option? And can you make a living there? We had Raoul Peck here before. He's one of those engaged activist filmmakers. He seems to be making a living at it, but clearly it's not an option that seems to be available for most filmmakers who want to create texts that may or may not be situated in, in black culture and reflect black life. So in terms of barbershop, I want you to entertain these ideas as this film entertains you. The film was released in late 19-2002. It generated some controversy. So I want you to think about those questions that I just asked you. What constitutes a black film? What is this question of the burden of representation? Is there such a thing for black filmmakers? We're going to start the film now, and I'd like you to maybe jot down some of your responses, because during the question and answer period, we're going to have you come up. We have mics on either side of the room, and we'd really like you to engage with us. We'd like you to discuss some of the things. Um, again, one of the reasons that I decided that this would be fit programming for us is because it also gives me the opportunity to introduce our visiting scholar, uh, at the Center for Black Studies, who is an activist in the question of reparations. She's a lawyer and she has been in the forefront of efforts to address with the reparations movement. And that is featured in the film in the last half. So with that, we're going to begin. And thank you, Ajua. This is Ajua Ayatoro. I'll introduce her more fully. Um, at the panel discussion. But what you see before me here is an egg timer. And this is because we have a lot going on. We're going to try to keep the program moving. So each of us will be timed. And I got this idea from Nancy Donor. It works. It keeps the program moving along. Everybody knows when their time is up. And so we're going to try that tonight in the spirit of keeping it fun and keeping it on track. So with that, let's watch Barbershop, and I hope you enjoyed this film, and then think about some of these serious issues. And one of the things that I wanted to do in setting up this program was to take this opportunity to introduce to the campus our visiting scholar at the Center for, the, for Black Studies, as well as try to plan a program that would involve our students. So our roundtable discussion is including 
faculty and students here, and I'm really pleased that they could all make it. And I'd like to begin with the introductions. Um, but first, let me just preface the introductions with just making one comment. The reason that I decided on this particular film as a program uh, highlight for Black History Month, I recalled seeing this film, and one of the things that struck me about this film was the way in which the civil rights discussion progressed. When I initially recalled the film, what I remembered about it that really bothered me was the way in which the issue of civil rights was discussed it was discussed in a manner that I thought was uh, entertaining. There has never been a black monolith. Black people have had varying opinions, and that's fine. But there was balance in the way they discussed the civil rights movement, I thought. But I remember being struck by there not being a similar um, debate or discussion about reparations. That issue seemed to be completely dismissed. So when I saw it again, I realized that there were more things going on than that. And so this is one of the things that got me thinking about how popular culture deals with important texts, important social issues. And that's why I thought this would make the perfect opportunity to bring together a scholar who's doing work on reparations, because I couldn't believe the way that discussion was going. But we do want to talk about other things as well. So I thought this would make the perfect opportunity to introduce our visiting scholar, who some of you may remember because she participated in the slavery conference uh, that was held just this past spring and in many ways uh, last spring and in many ways this conference continues that slavery conference that the um, that the Center for Black Studies put on so our guest and we are really excited to have Ms. Adjoa Ayatoro Esquire she is a social justice activist with expertise in program development litigation, organizational development, and community organizing. She is our visiting scholar in residence for this year. She is focusing on, in her research and in her advocacy, chattel slavery and its legacy, and she's teaching a seminar for the Black Studies Department on issues in reparations. Ms. Ayatoro is also an adjunct professor at the Washington College of Law, at American University in Washington, D.C., where she teaches a course on litigating reparations for African Americans. She serves as the chief legal consultant to the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, or NCOBRA, and she is the co-chair of the Reparations Coordinating Committee. Ms. Ayatoro is vice chairperson of the board of directors of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. She also has extensive international experience. In 1995, she coordinated the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law's delegation to the United Nations Conference on Women in Beijing, and she organized with Barbara Arnwine the Women of Color Caucus and the African American Women's Caucus. She also represented the Lawyers Committee at the Beijing Plus Five meeting in New York in 2000. In 1999, she represented the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the United States Section's Truth and Reconciliation Committee in the Hague's and that appeal for peace. And her vita is extensive, but let me just ask you to give us a warm round of applause for Adjua Ayatoro. Would you please stand, Ajwa, so they recognize you, please? And also, hot off the press is the anthology that just came out, Should America Pay? 
Um, and Ajua has a piece uh, in, this, in this anthology, and it just came out, so we're really happy to have her here to talk about this and other issues. Also on the panel is Professor Christopher Parker. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science here at UCSB. He got his PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. He has numerous academic awards and achievements. He has been active in the Midwestern Political Science Association in Chicago, and he has published, including the article, New Weapons for Old Problems, Conventional Proliferation, and Military Effectiveness in Developing States. And um, when I asked him if he would be interested in participating in this panel, he told me that, in fact, he's working on reparations and would uh, welcome the chance to come and share his ideas with you. And I'd like you to welcome Christopher Parker. I am also delighted to have my colleague, Anna Brasuti, who was a lecturer in film studies. I coerced her into coming and being a part of this panel, and she graciously agreed. But that was only after we briefly chatted about the film, and I thought she had some insightful comments to make, and I welcome her to this panel. Anna has been a lecturer in film studies at UCSB since 1992. She's taught courses such as Introduction to Cinema, Italian Cinema, Directors, Robert Altman, Antonioni, and Fellini. She also does Italian comedy, American film of the 70s, film noir. She's also taught courses at the Brooks Institute and has been leading a course that runs concurrently with the Santa Barbara Film Festival for the Center for the Study of the Future in Santa Barbara. Please give me a, join me in welcoming Anna to the panel. Thank you, Anna. And we have our students in the house, and I'm really happy that they are able to join us. First, and Kajan, you'll have to uh, help me with the pronunciation of your name, but um, Kajan Obioma Shaku. He is a senior. He's in the Law and Societies program. He's majoring in Law and Society. He's also a peer advisor in the Law and Society program. He's a student rep and diversity and equity committee in the Academic Senate. And his, under, his undergrad thesis, honors thesis, is entitled The Bleeding Heart of Integration, Systematic Destructions of Black Animacy in America. Welcome, Kajan. We also have on the panel Sarkis Bedrosian, my former student, who I cornered in the hall and asked if he would participate. And um, I ran into him coming out of the uh, Black Studies Department. And when I found out he was taking a course in Black Studies, I thought, yeah, you can do this. So Sarkis is, um, he is a double major in philosophy and film. And he's going to be graduating this winter, and he plans on attending law school. So join me in welcoming Sarkis Bedrosian. And finally, we have, last but not least, we have Tiffany Willoughby-Harrard. Tiffany is an, she's a graduate student. She is active in the community and is constantly asked to do things, but I'm glad she didn't turn me, turn me down on this request. We're really um, fortunate and delighted to have her here. She's an avid black movie collector, and she is a grad student 
writing on whiteness and scientific racism in South Africa. She has been accused of being a race woman, and because she studies colonial South Africa, she takes this accusation quite seriously. And her research has been funded, and she has been invited internationally uh, as well as nationally to talk on her work. So join me in welcoming Tiffany to the panel. Okay, so following um, Nancy Doner's example, we are each going to discuss our initial reactions to the film for five minutes. And then we will each take one or any number of three questions and themes that the film seems to raise. And then we're going to break, have dinner, and open up the, the floor to, um, to you guys. So we'll begin with whomever wants to start. Uh, I, think, I think we should start with Kijan. You know why? Because, because Kijan has seen um, Barbershop seven times. <laughs> One of them as a part of the pre-planning um, at my house to talk about some of the issues. And we thought we would talk about either some uh, issues regarding this, the question of reparations or the question of the civil rights discourse in this film, or other things. And we decided that the, the, the conversations were so great that we were just going to go for it. So five minutes, Kajan. <laughs> and your mic is there. Um, I really don't know where to start because because I've seen it so many times. I mean, I mean the the more and more I saw it, the more and more I picked the movie apart in dealing with a lot of the issues that they brought forth. But um, I will have to agree with um, Professor Everett in that um, the part about the way that they just completely dismissed reparations and considered it stupid is the thing that like really like gnaws at me. Like that is just because it's. A small sentence, but he's saying so much. And um, there are a lot of other things that came up, like the subliminal advertising um, in the film, um, a lot of gratuitous shots of, of women and so forth, and the way that they're depicting black women in the film. Um, let's see, the blonde hair. I mean, it's just like so many issues. I can't even, like, I think they will have to come out, like, when we start talking about them, and then I'll be able to, like, expand on them. But, like, that's about it. We'll go down the line. We'll go down the line. Um, my first impression of the film, I saw it only twice. Sorry. I can't, I can't, I can't match seven times. But my first impression of the film is that I wish I, I had seen more of, of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. Um, the bad stuff being something that reminded me of uh, Friends, right? The, uh, in fact, I, I see a, a great future um, as a sitcom uh, for, for the future, you know, future setting of the film or something. But uh, what I liked, uh, what I would have liked to see more about the film was uh, precisely this kind of interaction with the, among the characters, perhaps having them rounded up a little bit more, but also the uh, uh, character that plays the title role, the barber shop, I mean, the setting. I mean, I thought it was uh, incredibly beautiful, and uh, I, I wish I could have seen more, less perhaps close-ups and, and more, you know, of the entire environment, uh, what that means uh, to, to, to this group. Um, however, 
of course, I'm, I'm not uh, even in even you know uh, beginning to uh, to talk about the idea of reparation or the idea of uh, uh, the civil rights movement. But what struck me as uh, in in the comedy, in the humor on on the uh, Rosa Parks jokes and so on and so forth, it struck me actually as uh, as uh, uh, the essence of. Uh, what uh, comedy can do. I mean, the uh, idea that uh, in, uh, in a society that uh, um, accepts, I mean, in a, in a uh, society that actually uh, signifies acceptance, humor is always used uh, in, uh, in, in this way. Um, laughter, laughter to some extent, is based on malice, on the possibility of uh, uh, kind of maliciously, right, making fun of something, but not cruelty. I mean, the uh, idea is that we can distinguish between uh, kind of malice and cruelty. And in a sense, I mean, this, uh, um, uh, the entire film, I mean, in the audience is, uh, is embracing this uh, kind of humor whether it is uh, black or white, um, I, I thought I saw it in a movie theater the first time I saw it, and the audience was pretty was pretty mixed, and, and they were all kind of reacting to the same the same lines in the, in the same way. Um, what I thought was was the essence of that humor was that it uh, signifies acceptance of uh, of some uh, you know moments in history. Uh, it signifies that those moments have been processed, have been assimilated. Humor can only exist when, um, when an, an audience is comfortable um, with, um, with the extent of that assimilation. Uh, somebody who is making fun of Rosa Parks is not diminishing Rosa Parks, it's actually uh, kind of underlying the fact that she has become an icon of American society, that she has become you know, part of everybody's uh, historical background to some extent. So that, that was, that was my, my reaction to, to the film. Um, in a sense, I mean, there is a, there is a confidence in in the acceptance of social satire, when uh, when somebody can accept it, it's because uh, there, are, there there have been you know there, there have been an integration, there have, there have been hurdles that have been uh, overcome. Uh, I'm talking, of course, from the point of view you know my, I've, I've taught Italian comedy. Um, Italian comedy have, have been has been, of course, Italian films have been using comedy for a long time to approach some of the most absolutely devastating topics in uh, in in the social you know. In, in, in social satire, and uh, and that was my my signal. Yes. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, I mean, I liked the film because of that. I thought it was uh, a, a kind of an element. Uh, it signified an element of maturity, perhaps, uh, in our society. Um, and it doesn't mean that people have to accept it or reject it, or they can get offended. However, it's uh, you know, it's everybody is kind of uh, placed on, on the same level of acceptance or rejection. Okay. Um, I guess, uh, like Ajan, there was so many things. Uh, there were so many things going uh, through me as I was looking at it again, and I've seen it for the second time. The first time was in the screening at uh, Anna Everett's home, and then, of course, tonight. And I took a position of not wanting to see it uh, because what we heard back from our community was that it was. Uh, trashing reparations and trashing the civil rights movement. And my view was, why should I give them my money? Uh, why should I give my money to something that doesn't uplift what I uh, support and believe in? 
And uh, so when I saw it, uh, I, I like perhaps others, I know Anna said she had this response as well, was it was like seeing uh, Richard Pryor, he, not as funny as Richard Pryor of course, but seeing Richard Pryor when he was telling jokes that were like awful and against things that you really believed in but you couldn't help but laugh, you know. Uh, and so it was sort of like that. So I did find it to be entertaining uh, and uh, parts were funny and parts were very reminiscent to me of, you know, growing up in the black community and when I started wearing my hair natural, going into the barber shops and so there was some uh, reminiscence in a way, even though I think, and we may talk about it later, that it wasn't quite, to me, uh, the depiction of a barbershop as I, as I recall it. But I guess the thing that I want to share in my last couple of minutes before we uh, go to the next person and get to the other questions is that for me there was a subtext about reparations, even though they only talked about reparations on one occasion. And the subtext started from the very beginning when the guys were stealing the ATM machine and said, we're going to get paid. And, you know, throughout the movie, they were, every time they dealt with the ATM until the very end, it was, we're going to get paid. And the subtext about reparations is that thievery, that payment or reparations is, in fact, not owed. It's not a debt owed. It is, in fact, theft. Uh, again, we see it in the discussion of the uh, little girl who is extorting money from her brother uh, to keep quiet about the ATM machine. I mean, that's all wrapped up in reparations. So here, reparations becomes extortion. It's not a debt owed, it's extortion. And so that throughout is the subtext so that by the time we get to the short little back and forth about reparations, that's just the thing that's being brought to your consciousness, but all throughout you're being told that reparations is all about money that is not earned, that it's stolen money, it's, and so it's, a, a, it's never anything, you know, anything that is good about money is something that is in the current day, eking out a living, daddy never really made any money in the barbershop, but he is, and he is in fact the honorable person that's counterposed against, you know, the person who is giving you money for a dollar on a dollar, theft, you know, those kinds of things. So that was uh, the thing that I saw this time that I really didn't see the first time I saw it. That that subliminal, as I uh, think uh, Kajan called it, that for me was a subliminal message that you bet not support reparations because then you're supporting giving people something for nothing, for something they didn't earn, and you really succumbing, which is the actual theme, many people say, you know, you're creating white guilt, and so you're extorting money from white people because you want to make them feel guilty about slavery. And I found that that was particularly uh, upsetting, well, upsetting might be too strong, I didn't get upset about it, but disturbing in some ways because it belies the whole basis for a reparations argument. It doesn't, it doesn't allow you an opportunity as an audience to at least hear what are some of the le legitimate arguments for it, which I think is Anna's point in her first part, is that because it is totally skewed, there is even in the civil rights argument, there was an argument, there was almost a fight you know, defending Rosa Parks' honor, you know, and, uh, but in the reparations piece, it's so skewed that you, you, you're left with the view that if you, in fact, embrace it, that, you know, either you, you know, you're angry and you're saying they didn't say all these things, or you're feeling that somehow something's wrong with you, therefore, because something's wrong with the argument. So I found that to be quite disturbing, so even though I found the film to be entertaining, I feel that it really has done an injustice on that issue, as well as a couple of others. You know, I, I 
definitely think the gender issue is seriously problematic. You know, every woman had to have a, a, a tight pants and a big booty, and that was all they were focusing on. Uh, there was a little bit of difference in some of that, but I really felt that the gender issue was also significantly problematic. But I think that goes hand in hand with the concept and the construct of reparations being extortion, that in, that in fact is that women are these objects as well, much like African people were objects, but they don't deserve to be paid for their labor. I want to focus a little bit more on this issue of money and the way that money got used in this film. Um, and I actually just started this time kind of jotting down all the different ways that money got talked about. So it's not just the ATM machine, but it's also um, the barber, the main barber running away from money. Um, it's Lamar running away from his haircut because he doesn't have enough money. These arguments about there's no way to have um, a business in the ghetto because people don't know how to take care of business. Um, everything about the young man coming in and being able to sell everything from dogs to pampers to cell phones to um, satellite dishes. And it really spent, it made me think about the political economy of the, black econ of the black community and what it means to have access to money and where money comes from and who has resources to it and what the role of money is in the black community. Um, and that's something that I think we should spend some time thinking about more um, because before we even get to this conversation about reparations, I think stepping back and thinking about what we do with the money that we do have access to is really important. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting and that I didn't see the first time that I watched the film was the kind of level of intertextuality and the film's ability to cite all of these other kind of really important black films. So, you know, everything from the small boy coming in and saying, you know, thank you, my beautiful black princess. I, I can't remember what television show that's from, but it's from a television show, um, a black yeah, right, right. Um, there's a waiting to exhale moment with the woman bashing the car. There's even a reference to cornbread with the the, um, the Jamal Wilkes film, you know, with the, the boy having the basketball and buying shoes for him. And... Um, and the, you know, eat your eggs at the very beginning, you know, which is kind of, for me, it's a reference to um, a raisin in the sun and, you know, man's dream, you know, versus eat your eggs. Um, so that, on that level, it seemed like they must have had some real self-consciousness and sophistication about this filmic tradition that they're drawing on. So then why use these particular hot button issues that are not, clearly not resolved in the black community and that we have really kind of very divergent issues or very divergent opinions about to be the way to foreground this film, um, which I think really, I'm not sure what the money is on it, but I think the film actually did pretty well. Um, and so another thing I was interested in was the question of education and who got to represent upward mobility in the film and why it takes the film until the very end, you know, to reveal that, you know, actually everyone in the barbershop is, you know, has a pretty reflective personality and is an intellectual and is an, art, an artist in their own right. And these are people who consider themselves to be craftspeople. And so why does this one particular pretty objectionable figure who, you know, gets into it with everybody have to represent, you know, upward mobility via education. Um, 
And then also this piece about gender. I think gender, we um, always think about in terms of women, but the barbershop is a space of male identity and a space of kind of a... Um, and this, you know, the first time I viewed it, I viewed it um, with my friend, Professor Elise Lane. And she spent a lot of time asking the question about this being another kind of cultural nationalist, masculine, masculine kind of frame, um, this barbershop and this film. And so um, asked for that to be something that was put on the table as well. So that's it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Tiffany. Sarkis? Um, well, as a, as a film studies major, uh, we're often taught to look at a film and tell, you know, what's, what's, what is the story about? You know, every film, most films have a certain story to tell. And, you know, in Barbershop, there's also a message in Barbershop, a moral, what's the moral? You know, and uh, to, to, first of all, analyze what the moral of Barbershop is, I, uh, I, I, I noticed some themes that, ha that are in Barbershop that really uh, signify where or what the film wants to say about the black community. So, uh, first of all, the barbershop itself is uh, sort of a, sort of a, a it's it's a place where the it's a place where people, the community, could come speak their mind. It's a kind of a, a, I guess what did you say? A, a pillar. A pillar, but uh, a platform. I'm sorry, a platform where where people could come speak their mind in the community. You know, you have all the characters voicing a certain opinion, such as uh, uh, Eddie, who is kind of the subjective history. You know, the one who is saying, "Oh, Rosa Parks, all she did was just sit down on the bus. She was tired, whatnot." You know, that's just one aspect of, of history. But he's just voicing his opinion, and you know, that's fine in the barbershop. But where else can 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 people go in their community to speak? And, and, and just voice their own opinions. Another, another uh, important aspect of Barbershop, the film, is, is entrepreneurship. The, uh, the black ownership, you know, and, and the whole, um, the whole uh, idea of blacks maintaining uh, their businesses and becoming successful in the, uh, in the business sector, I think, is, um, is uh, you know, uh, dealt with in this film. Uh, Ice Cube is a character who, who wants to maintain his business and is in a bit of a dilemma in terms of money and you know we're talking about reparations and an important thing about uh, one important thing about that scene is everybody's voicing their opinion about reparations many people are against it some are for it but one person who cannot speak about reparations is is uh, Calvin because you know he's frustrated he doesn't have the money he's in another room but what would Calvin say if he was in the room would he say yeah I need the money reparations would be good because now I can maintain my business and following, you know, the scene with Calvin inside the uh, inside the locker room, you have Ricky, the the two-timer, the one who had been to prison twice, saying, you know, it's about discipline. You know, instead of uh, instead of having a really nice SUV, a real nice car, you know, you shouldn't you, live, you shouldn't live with your mom and, and show off. You should, you know, if you had money, you should spend it in the right place. So. One of the things with reparation is it's not just you know a handout. It's how you use the money. You use it for education. Would you use it for a business? Would you use it for your own business? And you know those types of issues with uh, entrepreneurship. Um, another thing is the underworld. This whole you know a lot of the, a lot of the a lot of the films I've seen that are you know uh, uh, these types of slapstick comedy type. Well, not slapstick comedy, but you know there was a slapstick. The com uh, characters with the two guys who had stolen the ATM machine. Um, also, too, with Keith David, kind of this, uh, Keith David's character uh, was Lester. He was this, um, you know, 
very stylized kind of gangster, very smooth talking. At, at the same time, this whole uh, issue of the underworld kind of controlling the community in, in, in the seams, you know, if you, if you can't go to the bank, you go to the underworld because the underworld will help you, you know. Um, in mo you know and, and this kind of is dictated in the film from the first, the first scene when these two, two young men are, are stealing. You know, what does this say for the, how does that set the tone for the rest of the film when your very first scene is two men stealing? Um, family, I think, is another issue here because Ice Cube is now, or Ice Cube's character, uh, Calvin, is somebody who is in a, a family, you know, he has a wife, and, you know, he doesn't consult his wife about selling the barbershop. You know, what kind of family, you know, uh, uh, um, organization is that. You know, this is not just in this black film. Yesterday I was watching a film of The Family Man, and it's the same, you know, the main character, Nicolas Cage, also wants to move uh, for his dreams, go for his dreams, and not really incorporate his wife with that. And that's something that, you know, is important in terms of maintaining a relationship, uh, whether it's uh, an African-American family or, or any, any family. Um, history. I think that history is also an uh, important theme because the barbershop itself is a historical piece that has, you know, it's a historical, um, uh, a historical piece of, of entrepreneurship that's been passed from father to son. And, uh, you know, it, te it's, it tells the history of Chicago, that community, for the last 30, 40 years, you know. And um, many characters have reminisced about, you know, how important it is. And it's, it was also, you know, uh, said over and over again, you know, about how uh, someone can come into the barbershop and feel good about themselves. And, and how Calvin's father was very rich because through time in the community, he has helped other people become successful. Um, also, integration of cultures within the community. For instance, the uh, man from India who got robbed, uh, you know, Ice Cube tells him to stay strong, brother. And, you know, I'm sorry. I was going to wrap up. Well, I'm going to wrap it up, sorry. Uh, you know, it's, it's important that, you know, uh, it's imp also important in the sense that, you know, communities become integrated because, you know, uh, togetherness is, is what we should promote. And I'm kind of lost for words now. I'm That's run great. out of steam. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, um, first of all, let me just say something uh, with prefatory remarks. If you see me shaking up here, it's not because I'm nervous, it's because I'm hungry. <laughs> okay, um, following all the other panelists, this is going to be kind of difficult, but I'll do the best I can to, to keep up. Um, the first time I saw the movie, um, I must say I didn't notice all the nuances um, that I did after I'd seen it one other time. I was kind of half asleep on that time. And then I went to go see it over Professor Everett's house. And, you know, with everybody that was there, I could see everybody, you know, was really key for catching everything. So I said, okay, I better get with the program and really pay attention here. So for the first time I saw it, I saw it and I viewed it, you know, just for pure uh, entertainment value. I mean, I wasn't thinking about you know, anything, you know, beyond what I saw on the screen. And, you know, and I laughed. I thought it was very, very, very funny. But after I saw it over Professor Everett's house, um, like everyone else, you know, I started picking it apart as well. And I was really disturbed by some of the images that I saw portrayed. However, in the spirit of being balanced, let me start off with the pluses. I think the movie is a good example showing the barbershop as a place for black public discourse, I mean, beyond the black church. I mean, that is a place where black men, and that's one of the problems that I have with it, is so misogynist, but, 
anyway. That's a place where black men can come and talk, and if they have a nail stand or something like that, you know, or if they have female barbers in there, you know, the black women can come and really talk about issues of the day. I mean, one can't certainly talk about, one's not going to talk about <laughs> J-Lo in church. I mean, they're going to talk about J-Lo and all these other things in the barbershop. Um, the second thing I'd like to mention is the diversity of black public discourse. I mean, many times, you know, we are offended when our dirty laundry gets aired in public. I mean, that is one place where there is no dirty laundry. You know, there is a diversity of opinion that can be played out and discussed and resolved, hopefully, in most cases, without anything you know, going out into the streets in the barbershop. Those are the pluses. These are the minuses. It's pretty much a caricature. Um, it's very misogynistic, as I mentioned before. It perpetuates these stereotypes that we have so long tried to rid ourselves of. And a third, and what I found kind of most disturbing, is that based on which region we're in, there is a lot of political discourse that goes on in barbershops. Maybe not so much on the West Coast, but in Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta, we really talk a whole lot about politics. We talk much more about politics than we do about J-Lo. Trust me, J-Lo lasts for that long. And then we're talking about the mayor. And we're talking about council people. We're talking about the county supervisors. We're talking about all these different things. But once again, I think that's a regional thing. But moreover, it's a generational thing as well. The older black barbers, you know, really, really know their politics. And here I am. I'm a political scientist or a grad student at the University of Chicago. I would go to the barbershop probably more often than I needed to just to hear about what was going on. Of course, you know, I paid my little $17 for a haircut. But, you know, I just I needed to find out what was going on in the community beyond the ivory towers of the University of Chicago. So it's a very, very nice place to gain information. But once again, I mean, that was woefully underplayed in the movie, and I found that extremely offensive. Thank you, Chris. We're going to take the roundtable uh, questions now. Um, in watching the film, um, there were several themes that came up that led to these three questions that we'd like to pose to the entire panel. And you may answer or pass, but you get a minute and a half to respond. OK, so question number one, the responsibility of black filmmakers. Do black filmmakers have a responsibility to the black community? And if so, what might that be? Was the film's depiction of the barbershop as a black public sphere fair? And is that important anyway? Hold on. Hold on. OK, two minutes. <laughs> um, I think it is important. Um, I do think that as a black filmmaker, you're entering into a genre um, this medium of television and film where typically we have been like the colossal joke, you know, the, the minstrel. So I do think that if, you're, if that is something that you want to go into, if you want to be a director or producer, um, I think our history warrants us to make sure that we like be careful about the way that we depict ourselves on film. I don't think, because our history is what it is, I don't think that it's okay for us to emulate other cultures and trying to say, oh, you know, my life is just like yours because it's not. So I do think that as a black filmmaker, you do need to be careful about 
how you show your culture on screen, on film. Anybody else? Thanks. Um, and you don't have to, you can just pass it. Not everybody has to answer each question. Well, I would have the opposite, <laughs> the opposite position. Um, because it, it, it puts a terrible, terrible burden and an unfair one. Um, in a sense, I mean, what if uh, the, it's not just a, a, a African-American filmmaker, a woman then cannot make films unless she makes films that are fair and, uh, and then present women in a particular way that is uh, supposed to be correct or, or palatable or supportive. And uh, then if you are a, a gay person, I mean, that, that also would preclude all kinds of uh, stereotypical representation that may or may not sell a picture. Um, it's, uh, it seems to be an unfair burden, particularly considering what you were talking about, the, uh, uh, the diversity of the, of the discourse that is uh, presented in, in, in a film like this. I mean, the diversity of opinion that there is in real life. So which one is the correct way or which one is the way in which you can present yourself. I mean, I think that's, uh, there, there should be some degree of latitude. I do not accept uh, a uh, kind of a responsibility that is not shared equally. Why will not we then, uh, you know, hold accountable a white filmmaker or a, a man, a representation of men, white men uh, on film? I mean, that seems to be a terrible burden to, to put on someone. Oh, sorry. Um, I just want to speak about it as kind of a, a space of a public sphere and whether or not that's fair because it had this very cultural nationalist bent to it about black masculinity. I think it actually wasn't. It was kind of a really hollow, not ring true kind of representation of the public sphere that black men claim. Um, and so for that, that is really problematic. Um, well, following up, uh, Tiffany, she's breaking out all this Habermasi and stuff. Uh, I almost feel compelled to follow, but I think Tiffany's in the zone right now, so I'm going to let her stay in the zone. Um, the bottom line is, I, I mean, I'm really ambivalent about this. On the one hand, you know, I think that we see far too much into some films and what's intended. And this was my knee-jerk reaction to this. I mean, every now and then, you know, as an academic, I like to go and watch something or listen to something without criticizing it, without thinking. It's nice just to go watch something stupid every now and then. You don't have to think because it's a release. It's entertainment. That's what it's designed for, to get you away, you know, from whatever your everyday troubles are. And for me, I mean, I think that black filmmakers or, or any artist of color or gender or sexual orientation does have a certain responsibility to his or her own constituency, be that uh, whatever community they want to de um, define as their own. But by the same token, I mean, I think the artist should also be given, a granted, enough latitude to where they can just make a fun movie or a fun video. Uh, with a small caveat, there shouldn't be too many of them, though. Okay, thank you. Um, question number two, gender and interracial issues. What role and function do the black females and the white male serve in this film? <laughs> Anybody want to take on that one? Um, the, the film seems to obviously be constructing a gender discourse and an interracial discourse. What role and function do the women have 
particularly the black woman, Eve in this case, and the wife, and the white male, the barber, what role do they serve in the film? What are, what's their function, do you think? In terms, of the, in terms of the narrative, in terms of the story? Anything that you observed about it in terms of the gender discourse. Um, well, I think that um, Eve's character wasn't developed like the other characters were developed. You know, every, all the other characters, including, uh, was the, what was the name of the, the white barbers? I don't know. The white, I don't, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry? Isaac. Isaac? Mm -hmm. the, well, the white barber. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they all had they, they all had conflicts. I mean, the only main conflict that Eve's character had was that she was breaking up with her boyfriend. Well, one of the main conflicts is that either somebody was drinking her apple juice or her boyfriend was cheating on her. And I think that you know that she lacks depth. The other characters, you know, have a different type of arc that you know everyone's trying to deal with. You know, whether it's Jimmy, who's you know he's kind of bitter, elitist, academia, and know it all, and you know uh, he has conflict with other people there she doesn't have that kind of a conflict because she is not challenged as a, as a, as a, she's not her character hasn't been challenged in the way that she was written and uh, i think that 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 personifies how women uh, or black women in this film are you know presented you know it's they're they're kind of submissive to this whole um uh, male dominated uh male dominated um structure where you know the barbershop is you know the, the the men speak and the women are you know submissive to that and that's also reflective of ice cube's wife you know she doesn't have a say in whether he sells the business or not he just does it because in 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 a sense it doesn't really matter what she thinks he's going to do it anyway so that's how i think about you know, how she how the uh, how women were or either that or they're personified as or they're presented as uh meat basically whether it's a close-up of a of a rear end or what not, or the or breasts I agree. that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank, thanks for that setup. <laughs> um, the, the gender issue. I mean, I disagree. I don't, I don't think Ice Cube's wife was uh, was necessarily submissive at all. She was probably out of the informational loop, which is not cool. But one cannot say that she was necessarily submissive. You know, she served as his conscience in many ways. Um, so I would kind of disagree with that. But the white barber was definitely a foil for identity. I mean, because you had on the one hand, he who was acting black, right, more so than the educated guy who was, you know, the way in which he enunciated his words and how he thought he knew it all was, to me, um, identified with whiteness, right? So for me, the, the white barber was an identity foil you know, for at least, at the very least, the quote-unquote educated black barber. Okay. Yeah. I, um, well, I guess a couple of things, and, and I, I guess I differ a little bit with Tiffany in when she identifies it as cultural nationalism. I think that the sexism and the machoism is very typical, not because of cultural nationalism, but because we are in a chauvinistic society, a paternalistic society, and a, a patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very similar in many of, I mean, my parents weren't cultural nationalists, but many of the men in my parents' generation, you know, viewed women, not necessarily in the, the I don't know how they viewed them in terms of the sex, because they wouldn't tell me, but in terms of, you know, I'm the man, you know, and, you know, I, you know, and even when I'm the man and, you know, she's making more than him and all of that, I'm the man, you know. So I, I don't think, I wouldn't label it cultural nationalism. I would label it as a very chauvinistic 
uh, 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 movie that did uh, deal with the submission of women. I think that the, uh, the depiction of women uh, uh, was very stereotypic in terms of we are property and we are objects, we're sex objects. And I think that was true. I mean, I think there was an exception, and I agree somewhat with Chris, most particularly since we had this discussion before. Uh, I got to shut up, don't I? But I think that the wife did have a little bit of a different presentation, but it was still stereotypic. I mean, the only women that had dark hair were the bad, the bad women. You know, the other women, the, I mean, everyone had blonde hair. I mean, the, it was not uplifting in terms of being a black woman, to me, uh, at all. Not only the sex part, but how they were displayed. Can I, can I ask a question? I'm wondering, and this is really just a question, I'm wondering whether or not, um, because of the relations of power in the black community, whether or not it's more likely that women might have a different view about reparations than men have. I mean, I mean, you're doing this activism. Are you seeing any kind of differences around that? I mean, maybe because the film has this space of men being able to critique reparations um, and because of black women's material experiences and not necessarily having the kind of social burden of having to prove their masculinity by being able to be mm -hmm. providers. I wonder if there's any difference there. In the movement, um, I would say no. Okay. Um, there are quite a few men in the movement, and I don't think there's an, uh, you know, it's not like the black church, for example. You go to church and there's one man to every ten women. Um, um, break and give refreshments and then open it up to the floor. Our final question is this question over reparations with which you guys have gotten a jump start on. So reparations and the civil rights controversy. So we know we get a sense of how you feel about this first one. How is the topic treated in film and in this film and does this film's treatment of this important topic impact attitudes about it in the larger society, potentially. Yes, it does. Um, I feel that too often people go to the movies or whatever, and like that is where they get their information. And particularly with this being a black film and them displaying black life on film in the way that they did and then to like completely disregard reparations as a handout and stupid, I think it, you know, it was unfair. Yes, it was. Inaccurate. Anybody else want to weigh in on just what that question of the, the relationship to popular culture treating serious topics, its potential effect on actual movements in the society? I think it clearly is an influence. I mean, most people get their positions on things from, you know, what they read and what they see. And uh, in movies and whatever, I mean... Uh, people take it on as if it's real, like they think this life is real. I mean, you know, it's, so I think it does, it's a definite influence, and I think it did, I didn't weigh in on the other question, because I, I am, like uh, Chris, a little ambivalent, because I, I believe in the First Amendment, and people have a right to express their views, whatever they may be, but I think that the particular imbalance on reparations showed something in terms of the filmmaker's perspective, and the filmmaker didn't want to hear or display any other position. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was meant to influence. I think it was intended to influence in a very comical way, but I think the intent was to influence the reparations argument. Okay. Well, thank you all for that. I want to give you a round of applause and get moving on the next portion.
Um, my name is Hung Tai, and I'm a professor in the Asian American Studies Department. Um, actually, new I professor, to, welcome. New to professor the to the Asian American <laughs> Studies Department, and I actually want to sort of um, kind of reply to that question that you just sort of um, asked, and and indirectly sort of answering the question that Anna Everett asked about the responsibility of filmmakers, and particularly in the minority communities, um, but also to problematize what Anna, what you sort of said about the authentic sort of identification of black culture in this movie. Um, because to me, I read this movie as sort of um, a critique of inequality in urban America, uh, which um, I'd like the panelists to actually discuss. Um, because what I felt the director or the, produ the producer is trying to do is to illustrate to us that um, given sort of the uh, dramatic inequality in the United States, um, if we were to see as normalizing situations of um, in urban areas of unemployment, of overcrowded schools, of um, um, all kinds of sort of things that would make um, uh, mobility sort of nearly impossible in urban America, then we would expect to see as part of the normal situation in, ur in, ur in urban America, violence, internal oppressions, etc., which I think the director sort of does really well in telling us this. If those are normal situations, then it, is, should, be, it should be the normal case that violence is a normal situation in everyday urban America. So I wanted to see what the panelists would have to say about that. Anybody want to weigh in? Well, I'll weigh in. I hate to keep weighing in on everything, but um, what your question and comment brought up, though, for me was another stereotype of the film. Uh, I think it's good that you can look at it and then counterpose, well, the lack of education and all the different so-called social ills that may exist in poor communities, but the film didn't depict that. What the film depicted, it seemed to me, was, again, a, I think, a a, a distorted view of the black community uh, because it, it, it didn't depict children going to school with the ceiling still falling in in 2002, you know, still not having adequate books. It didn't depict, uh, it, 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 it didn't depict the conditions in terms of health, the conditions in terms, it, can, it, it depicted black people as buffoons on the one hand, uh, uh, characters of, you know, the sex object types, and it depicted this, the economic, which I think a couple of us have talked about, the economic needs of the community or lack thereof of money. But I don't think it gave that holistic view that you could look at. It just fulfilled the stereotype that blacks are either thugs, and can't even do that well, thugs, criminals, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and people who don't consult with their wives and then take money from loan sharks. Um, I would like to sort of hear from the audience, um, so if we can let them kind of get in and contribute, okay. I was <laughs> I do this one. question. Right, no, 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 because oh, okay. Chris wanted to jump oh, in, but, oh, okay. I, but I do oh, okay. want to hear from... Oh, okay. yeah, I thought yeah. you were looking at me. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. Can, we, can we hear from, from the audience a little bit, because we were oh, kind of okay. talking. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I wanted to bring up two things. First is uh, on this question of the responsibility of a filmmaker. Um, you know, one of the parallel movements are sort of uh, genres, one could also say, that I can think of in 1990s American cinema is the so-called new queer cinema, which sort of hit this apex around the 1992, I would say, with a lot of movies that came out that were addressing 
uh, homosexual serial killers. Uh, so there was a clear shift away from having to always uh, represent positive images, just as a counter, as a way of countering the kind of Hollywood stereotypes. So for me, it seems like those were very interesting uh, interventions into the notion, the emerging notion of a queer subjectivity. Now, race is a little bit different, but at the same time, it would seem to me like the main responsibility of a filmmaker should be to keep the dialogue open. And I have to say, this is my first time, I just love the film. Um, uh, one has to look at the entire kind of dinomo, the way the narrative, where does it end? Uh, I think Sarkis was uh, bringing up, you brought up the idea of history, right? That it deals with history. And in many ways, you know, when Rosa Parks is questioned, I see that as have a, a movement away from defying certain historical figures. And yet at the same time, it's ultimately about saving a community space. It's about the family. It's about the importance of maintaining those spaces. How does this guy spend the $20,000, right? All those issues, I mean, so it's very much about history. It's very much about community, ultimately. And the question I want to bring up uh, is, you know, as an Indian, not a Pakistani, but an Indian, <laughs> I have to go back to the figure of the Indian and uh, already the idea of the diasporic, uh, sorry, quickly, diasporic African was brought up. In a sense, these two figures take us away from a kind of community or an uh, Afro-American nationalism to the question of a transnational intervention or exchange, right? As an Indian, I could say, that, or someone from Africa, maybe a Nigerian, could say that we as colonial, once colonial subjects, now post-colonial people, want reparation from Great Britain and by extension from the USA. My question is how would African Americans feel about that kind of demand? So it becomes really complicated when you take it a little bit out of the national context. Thanks. Thank you. Anybody want to jump in on that one? Um, as far as, like, like he's, I mean, if I'm understanding him correctly, he's saying that once you inject this notion of transnationalism, that the whole argument for reparations, whether you be Indian or, or, or Nigerian or whatever, that it would change. But um, I don't think that it does. I, I don't understand. I don't get how it's different, um, whether you're in Africa or you're here, because with black people being brought here, that was colonization. So it's, I don't, I don't understand the difference of, you know, what you're talking about. And can I briefly respond to that? Sure. Because your taxes will go to the payment of people outside of the country. It's not exactly the same thing, probably. I'm asking whether you think of it as the same thing or different. Right, the idea of, is it, does it complicate issues when you have to think about all of the different groups that have a claim to um, reparations and then? No, I don't see a difference. If, the, if this group has been wronged and if reparations is their way of like trying to make amends with their oppressor, then they deserve it. Try to think about that question is I mean there's we could think about it in terms of people um, fighting over crumbs or we could have a larger vision about 
I mean, if the WTO can have a vision about setting up the economic relationships of the world, then I think maybe third world people need to have a, you know, understanding of where the money of the world is going to go. Um, so it's about having larger vision. Good comment. Anybody else? Yes. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to weigh in on, um, first off, the movie as a whole. I just saw it as a reflection of the community, just in general. I mean, even down to the dialogue, the interactions between the, you know, all of the people in the movie. It really was just, you know, it shows things that way, in the way that they do go on in the community. But um, two things would be, one was the women, the woman in the barbershop, that although she was there, the men didn't stop, you know, Objective. ogling women, you know, and if you saw, there was a quick shot of when the mother walked in that they showed Eve, and if I'm not mistaken, she was even doing a woman's hair, and they just kind of, you know, looked on. And they were still sitting there when they were like, you know, made all their comments after she left, which was one thing that, you know, kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but, you know, that's what happens. And then the other thing would have, was the comment between the white guy and the educated guy when he, he made the comment, you know, I'm blacker than you are. And that's one thing in the black community is that we identify ourselves sometimes with, you know, baggy jeans and sweatsuits and things like that. But, you know, when they're selling Sean John and Robinson's May and you can buy rims anywhere you want to, why are we as a people associating ourselves with just those things? And in that movie, that's, in the movie, that's what it did. Because that's what he had on as opposed to the educated guy, you know, he had on whatever, khakis and a t-shirt. And he was upset by that. And I feel like, why, you know, why should we just identify ourselves with those physical things when being black is so much more than just that? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Good comment. Did anybody want to, yeah, Chris, please. All right, let me respond to that. Um, I think the main reason why um, black authenticity is, is so typically associated with those things is because it's a countercultural thing. You know, it's anti, you know, whatever white is. It's countercultural. That's the principal reason for this association. And, um, but may I uh, digress just for a second about the uh, role of the filmmaker just very quickly? And, and that is, um, I, I think that, you know, sometimes we place too great a burden on these filmmakers. We have to look at what the scope of the film is. And I think as our, my distinguished colleague um, mentioned that, you know, that, some of the economic deprivation is not shown in the film, well, we have to consider what the scope of the film is. And, and I think to the degree that that could have been worked in, you know, I mean, that's fine, but I think it would have taken it beyond um, the total scope of the film. If it was something more serious, then I would have objected a whole lot more and that they should have shown the economic deprivation. But it was, for me, once again, it was a kind of a, a lighthearted film and I wouldn't expect them to take on something as heavy as that within the context of this film. Um, I don't mean to beat the issue to death, but about the, the responsibility in black producers and filmmakers. <clears throat> I, think, I think anybody who's black has a small responsibility to, to kind of display what is black. Just because when, I mean, there's, there's so few black people here in America as far as like compared to white people. Um, so when people see me, they don't see like the average person in America that walking around. They see a black person doing something. And a lot of times they associate what I do with what black people do. So if, let's say, I speak for 100 people, then 
What I do is 100 times more important. In other words, it's speaking for 100 more people. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the filmmakers, they're not, they're not just creating something out of their back pocket or something like that. People are going to look at that like a black film. It's going to speak to people like this is what black people are about. This is what black people do. So I do feel that they do have a responsibility to, to kind of uphold what, what's real in black life and, and black thought. Um, <clears throat> I don't necessarily think that they too far misrepresented in this film. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that subject. Thank you, thank you. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, um, I just wanna thank uh, everybody to, uh, to be here first. And uh, second to say that um, in my country we would say that when you have the storm, uh, the, 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 the storm in the sky, each one put his hand in his head, in his head, on his head. I mean, my English not that good. I'm sorry about that. But uh, um, this is, this movie just brought up brought up um, a very fundamental issue. It discussed it discussed a lot of things, but uh, the what I, what I call it here fundamental issue is about Africans and Africans. Um, the, 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 the character of the, or the, the Nigerian in that movie, I was very, very happy to see a representative of African in, in this barbershop. I, I think it was a very, very great uh, uh, cast. Because even he didn't talk about the issue uh, with words, but he thought about it with his presence in you know, this barbershop. For me, that represents my ancestor in you know, that barbershop. And, uh, but what is my concern is that the way he had been seen by the, the story, or I could say uh, the, the entire, the entire, the entire uh, scenery, the way they treat him in that movie. And I think either maybe, it might be maybe, because like my, my brother over there said, um, the, the filmmaker reflect our, our consciousness, because we don't, for right now, as the black, black men in the United States, we don't have, um, we used to have, I mean, a lot of other uh, representatives, they, they talk about some issues, and today we are here, we, we're free, I could say, but we don't, uh, we don't have a black, uh, I don't know, president in the United States, I could say. So which means the image on the screen represents that kind of person. And what, whatever, whatever he's saying is very important to us is that image which goes around the world. And people will say that image to judge who is African, I mean, born in Africa, and African born in the United States. And so... The way he treated that Nigerian, I was, I was on my chair there, and uh, I was like, yeah, this is how we treat it by our, our, uh, our, our brothers. Because some said that uh, um, the, the ancestors have been, uh, been uh, uh, sold by their brothers and sisters in Africa. So today, they're kind of angry about that issue, even they know or they don't know about really what was the slavery in Africa. How many families uh, 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 suffered from not to, to be able to see anymore their sister, their friend, their, 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 their brothers and others issue. 
Okay, we're going to have to kind of... Yeah, my, bri bri briefly my question. My, I, I'm sorry. So what, what I wanted, to, I'm sorry about that. What I wanted to ask to uh, the, pa the panel list of people, um, what do they think that the, 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 the filmmaker, I mean uh, the, the director of the, that film, wanted to show in a visual character of the Nigerian uh, in a, this movie because I didn't really get it. Oh, it was uh, to make fun of uh, the, the African in the United States, in, uh, African born in Africa in the United States, or it is just to, see, to show what is the, the real relationship between Native Africans and uh, African Americans. Thank you. Thank you for the question. It's a good question. Um, I think uh, we should get the last question in and then we're going to have to sort of wrap it up. <laughs> so, yes, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, it'll be uh, brief. Um, like what he was talking about, I didn't really like how they portray the relationship between the, uh, I guess he was Nigerian male and pretty much everyone else. I mean, no matter what he did, it didn't matter. He was still going to get clowned or that's made fun of. <clears throat> um, but then again, it was a, a fairly real description or a depiction of black life. And um, I mean, unfortunately, that's how Africans are treated um, by us. Um, and also for, the, for a large extent. And I think it's not necessarily because a lot of us feel as though, okay, we were sold by our ancestors, but it's what, our, what schools have taught us about Africa. And it's just that, you know, it's, it's ignorance, you know, it's people swinging from trees and all that. And, you know, if we had control of that education, things might be different. But, you know, because the system feeds us that, you know, we're a product of that sickness. So once again, I mean, I apologize for that. <clears throat> but I do think that filmmakers have a, a responsibility, especially black filmmakers. And some people could say that as a downside, or I guess maybe it is an upside, but honestly, that's just kind of how it is. I think, you know, I'm only 20 years old, so I don't really know how it was prior to integration, but it seems as though maybe since integration came about, you know, blacks feel as though they can just identify with any old community or, you know, not necessarily with the black community. And that's all right. They don't have those bonds anymore. They're not, they're not tied to that greater community. And so they're not responsible. And they can, like most white artists do, produce whatever they want. And it's not going to have that too much of a major impact or too many major implications. But the fact is, when we do produce these movies and they're seen nationally and internationally, and there's people who've never seen blacks before. It's like, that's all they know. That's all they see they start believing that and that affects voting trends and you know just like the level of oppression i think upon black people how blacks treat each other how you know other people look at blacks lastly real quick i thought it, i mean mlk and rosa parks they were only human but at the same time blacks really don't have too many people to look up to you know except for uh I guess movie star and pretty much entertainment people and those were the people who were like fighting for our freedom which is the biggest role models that we have as oppressed people and so to see other blacks talking you know down talking MLK and Rosa Parks and all that you know maybe if it was in the barbershop the real barbershop that's one thing but this wasn't the barbershop this was national media that went out and we did this to ourselves and this is just another way where I think people in power can say, oh, look, you know, they don't even look up to their own people or, you know, this and this and that. I just think it, it was our dirty laundry and it shouldn't have been aired like that because we're not every other community. We're very different. So. 
Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank everybody. I really appreciate your comments. But don't leave. We just have a couple of closing remarks by our visiting scholar, Ajwa Ayatoro. Would you please give us our benediction? And, uh, <laughs> and I'd like to thank everyone for coming out and have the concluding remarks. And we'll then say good night. Well, um, first of all, I'd like to thank everybody for coming and also the questions and comments from everyone I thought were just excellent. One of the things, and we don't really have time, and I know people were tired, but one of the things, the last uh, Lowe's question, the, the point the other gentleman just made around the depiction of relationship between Africans and African Americans, and or African descendants as I call them here in the United States, is very integral to the issue of reparations. And I think someone raised the question, the gentleman from India raised the questions about, well, what would happen if, you know, Indians wanted to seek reparations because of the oppression and, and all groups. It reminded me, and I wrote a note about the World Conference Against Racism, that at the World Conference Against Racism, groups from all over the world eventually, out of the leadership of the African and African Descendant Caucus, began to embrace reparations, not simply reparations for Africans and African descendants, but reparations as a viable remedy for the oppression that they had suffered because of their group identity. And that's what reparations generally is paid for in the sense of the international arena. It is a uh, response to the crimes against humanity. We saw that response in the victims of the Holocaust. We saw that response with Japanese Americans. One of the things that I think is real critical, which I think this film supports, is the trivia, it makes it the issue of reparations becomes trivial, trivialized when it deals with African descendants and Africans. Because I think in a way bringing them together also brings together the connection between the the devastation of Africa and the, the economic boom for the colonies in the United States at the expense of Africa. Uh, and so what happens, it seems to me, is if we under, if, if because of the trivialization of it, it kind of goes hand in hand with it in our communities, and, and not just black communities, but communities all over, because people don't want to deal with the awful crime against humanity that was the transatlantic slave trade, that was chattel slavery, that was the Jim Crow era, that continues in so many ways the consequences of which we see today. The whole fight over affirmative action is a fight over whether or not we're going to own up to the consequences of what happened back two, three, four, five hundred years ago, or are we going to say let's let bygones be bygones, and so, as we were reading in one of our uh, articles for our class, therefore you're going to have uh, 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 Walker, David Walker in his 1830 appeal said it's like putting a deer in a cage and then putting another deer beside the cage and then say okay we'll give you your freedom uh, and then you expect them to run at the same rate where the deer inside the cage can can't run at the same rate because he's in the cage or she's in the cage. And it's the same theory that if we're going to, it seems to me, uh, if we're going to address what is happening today, it's like a speech that I made at the World Conference Against Racism, that the past 
creates the present in its own image. That if we're going to address issues of inequality, we cannot address them simply by saying, okay, now everybody's equal. You know, we've oppressed black folks for 500 years, maybe Indians and whatever group. But that in fact, there has to be some form of reparations. The other thing is, and I think the name of the book is also, I think, feeds into a stereotype because reparations is more than a check. It includes a check, but reparations is more than a check. It is, in fact, developing schemes by which we can educate people about the awful crimes against humanity. That was one of the forms of reparations that the Japanese Americans got. They got a fund that could be used to develop education projects so that in the, in the hope and the process of, of, of not having it repeated, there can be issues pertaining to the unfair treatments and, and looking at laws to determine that these laws are, in fact, perpetuated that inequality, affirmative action in some mild form is, is a mild form of reparations. So that in some ways, because we have looked at reparations as simply a check, the argument becomes, you know, whether or not people should get money. I guess lastly, my response to that whole money thing is uh, when I was burned and I sued the store who sold me the robe uh, that was in fact taken off the market a year before they sold it because of the inflammatory nature of it, the judge didn't ask me when we went to the settlement how I was going to use that money. That was not a criteria for me obtaining the money that I obtained because I was burned. Why should it be a criteria for African people that in fact we won't give them a check because they'll buy a Cadillac. It's their money. If they want to buy 10 Cadillacs, it's their business. It's not anybody else's business. But the other thing is it again underscores a stereotype. Because I don't know about y'all who live in the black community or grew up in the black community, but most of the people that I knew in the black community could squeeze a nickel and buy food for their families for months. It creates a stereotype that we are total mismanagers of money, which is not true that many of our families, not in my generation, but the generation four, maybe in mine, sent children to school, to school, to college, and they were making probably one-tenth of what most of us make, if that. But they were able to utilize that funds. So I think that the movie only highlights the stereotypic way of looking at the black community, which I think is a disservice. And I finally, I think it's a disservice, as I was just saying to the sister here, because as an oppressed people, who are still seeking liberation, and that goes for any group, but I'm speaking here about African descendants, we do have a responsibility. If, in fact, we were fully liberated, when white folks look at a film, and they, I haven't seen very many films that depict white folks as buffoons that much, but maybe there are, and I just haven't seen them. But when white folks do a film, or when a film is presented that presents white people in a demeaning way, we all know that that is only a slice of white community. We know that because we've seen or participated in all the other pieces. But as the gentleman said who spoke last, when you see that film about African descendant people and your stereotype about them is just what that film says, that film does more harm than I think any filmmaker should be allowed to do. So even though I support the First Amendment, I, you know, I used to work for the ACLU. You had to support the First Amendment. Uh, I still think that we have to look at what is the responsibility of spokespersons for people coming out of slavery that are still 
taking off the chains of slavery. And there is a different responsibility for those spokespersons than there is for a spokesperson of a majority culture that has been able to present and elevate themselves on the backs of oppressed people to be what maybe people be view as the rulers of the world. So I'd like to thank you again for coming and thank you for your welcome of me.